Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to the very first episode of Killer Destinations. Kathy with a C and I have been friends most of our lives, and for the last 20 years or so, we've taken family vacations together at our favorite lake, otherwise known as the best lake. Typically, you'll find us wakeboarding, inner tubing, or hanging out in our relaxation station at our cove. Most often with an adult beverage of our choosing in our hands. And you'll find us discussing the latest true crime stories that have just hit the news. Last year at the cove, we decided to join the world of true crime podcasts, and each week we'll be taking you to a new destination where a terrible crime has occurred. Today's destination is Newport Beach, California. Newport Beach is a beautiful city that enjoys 10 miles of the sparkling Pacific coastline. It has some of the most beautiful homes in California, but still has a casual coastal vibe. Newport Beach is known for surfing, back bay hiking trails, and the iconic visitor hotspot Balboa Island. But in 1991, Newport Beach became known for something very sinister. In June 1991, Newport Beach resident Denise Huber had just graduated from the University of California at Irvine. And like a lot of college graduates, Denise was living at home and simply trying to decide what the next steps to her life were going to be. By all accounts, Denise was a wonderful friend, a thoughtful and loving daughter, and generally just thought of to be fun to be around. Denise was working part-time at the Old Spaghetti Factory. Now, this is a national chain, but in Newport Beach, it's been a local icon for more than 50 years. What I liked best about the spaghetti factory growing up is that on the booth, both sides looked like a headboard and a footboard. So basically, it made you look like you're eating dinner in bed. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember that about it. However, I was there a lot in high school because our sports teams always had end of the year parties there. And I was insane about the bread and, of course, the portion sizes. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Stay classy, butterfly. (laughs) She lived at home with her mom, Ioni, her dad, Dennis, and her brother, Jeff. And she was a daddy's girl, which is something I totally appreciate because I was too. But she used to leave little yellow post-it notes around for her dad. And at the end of May, she had just left one that had said, Hi, Dad. I love you. Have a great day. Love, Denise. Little did they know that in a few short days, their lives would be irreparably changed. 
Denise was dating Stephen Horrocks, who she worked with at the restaurant. He bought tickets for them to go to a Morrissey concert at the Forum in Inglewood, which was about 45 miles north of Denise's home in Newport Beach. Do you remember Morrissey? I do. Yeah, he was the lead singer of the Smiths. For those of you who don't know, it was one of the popular bands of the 80s. Many British bands were popular in the 80s. And when the Smiths broke up, he continued on. It was really his distinctive voice that kind of created the Smiths. And so it was easy for him to carry on and be quite successful. He kind of was known for brooding, dark, depressive tones. He was really noteworthy. Stephen had bought the tickets because he knew how much Denise loved Morrissey and the Smiths, but wasn't able to switch his work shift so he couldn't go with her. They gave the extra ticket to his friend Robert Calvert instead. In the true spirit of a Morrissey concert, as Kathy with the C just explained, she was dressed all in black. Black dress, black jacket, black stockings, and black high-heeled shoes. Of course she was. Yeah, you can't go to a concert without looking like exactly. that. Exactly. She and Robert had agreed that she'd do the driving, and after picking him up in her silver-blue Honda Accord, they stopped at a liquor store on the way to the concert. Which you did. Of course. I mean, back in the 90s. Everybody did. In Southern California, at least, this was standard practice for a concert. You went to a liquor store and pre-partied in the parking lot <laughs> of the venue before going in. In your car, yes. I'm not sure if we weren't aware of tailgating at the time, <laughs> or maybe we just were too cool to do that. I have no idea. All I know is you were in the parking lot drinking, looking around at other people in their cars drinking. After the concert, they went to El Paso Cantina in Long Beach before heading home at closing time. Okay, which, when I read that they went to El Paso Cantina, completely tripped me out. It took me back immediately. So this concert was on a Sunday night. When I looked it up on the calendar, I'm like, of course it figures it was Sunday night. El Paso Cantina on a Sunday night was absolutely happening. It was the only game in town. It had no competition from any other bars. They played the best music and it was so much fun. They had a massive dance floor and basically everybody stayed dancing until 1.30 or 2 in the morning. It was so much fun. I went many times with your sisters and our friends and I am 100% certain that I was probably there at some point with Denise being there as well. Oh, I'm sure you were. It was the place to be on a Sunday night and, and it was right down the way from Barwinkles, which was Thursday night, two for one Long Island iced teas. Like it was a little slice of the Long Beach Marina. It's like she was in the know going there. Well, exactly. She would have had to have known to go there. It isn't something you just stumbled across. You Correct. had to go and find it because yep. you knew it was there. Yes. She dropped Robert off at about 2.05 a.m. in Huntington Beach. According to Jonathan Volsky with the Orange County Register, Robert said he knew exactly what time it was because as he was getting out of the car, he looked at the clock. He knew he had to work the next morning and wanted to know just how little sleep he'd be getting that night. I think we've all done that. Yes. But Robert had no way of knowing this was the last time he'd see his friend. The next day, June 3rd, 1991, Mr. and Mrs. Huber realized that Denise hadn't come home from the concert the night before. They assume she's with some friends, but by six o'clock, when they have not heard from her or seen her, they are now very, very concerned. They call her best friend, Tammy Brown. Tammy tells them she has not seen or heard from Denise either, but she tells Mr. and Mrs. Huber, don't worry, I'll make some phone calls. So she calls Robert, she calls Stephen, she calls other mutual friends, and then she decides to trace Denise's route from the time she dropped off Robert. Tammy, being the good friend that she is, takes Pacific Coast Highway North and then wends her way through Huntington Beach, hops on the 405 South to the 73 South. And at 10 p.m. that night, June 3rd, she spots Denise's car on the side of the 73 South. 
Tammy drives past the car, gets off the freeway, goes to a payphone. She calls Mr. and Mrs. Huber. She tells them the location of Denise's vehicle. Tammy called her message machine because, yes, nobody had cell phones back then. It was a message machine, hoping that Denise had left a message. But unfortunately, she had not. So Tammy then got back on the freeway, pulled over behind Denise's vehicle, and noticed that she had a right rear flat tire. Just as Tammy is leaving the site of her friend's vehicle, she sees flashing lights in her rearview mirror, and it was Mr. and Mrs. Huber signaling to her that they had arrived. Mr. and Mrs. Huber park behind Denise's vehicle. They get out. They go open her car door, which was unlocked. Now, they don't touch anything on the inside. Because as any true crime fan knows, you don't touch anything on the inside. Exactly. But they want to see inside. They want to see what's going on. And nothing is going on. Not only does Mrs. Huber not remember Denise having any kind of mechanical problems, there's nothing in the vehicle. There's no shoes, no purse, no keys. It's as though she vanished. There was nothing there. Her mother immediately knows something was very, very wrong because every single thing that was important to a person is not in the vehicle. And it didn't look like any foul play had occurred. Yes. So she calls the police. The Costa Mesa Police Department, which has jurisdiction over the scene, immediately takes the case seriously. Then Costa Mesa Police Sergeant Ronald Smith was in charge of missing persons. He testified at trial and he described the location where Denise's vehicle was found. He said that it was found between two call boxes. And if you don't know what a call box is on a freeway... Then ask your parents. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So it was between two call boxes and it was in a very well-lit portion of the 73 South. Now, the 73 South basically dead ends into some residential areas and some commercial areas, but it's not a super traversed freeway. Yeah. At the time, you know, you see on TV or see pictures in the newspapers or online about these big, huge, concrete Southern California freeways. The 73 was not that. It was three lanes in each direction, but it was about 100 feet was the center median. And it was dirt. You don't see that in any other place. It also wasn't uncommon for the 405 South, which connected to be 100% backed up. Yes. And you'd have like 20 people on the 73 with you. Right. The 73 led to the ocean. It led to residential areas and it led to sort of this small commercial zone. About two tenths of a mile away from Denise's vehicle was a payphone, a gas station, several fast food restaurants, a residence in motel and a strip mall. Now, to get to those things, she would have had to walk down the embankment, which had a fairly steep slope, which was about 75 to 100 feet. And according to the court documents, although it was kind of steep, it was still traversable. She could have walked it. She she couldn't have walked it, though. I mean, two o'clock in the morning, she has high heels on, coming from a concert. She is not going to look down this steep hill full of gravel and say, oh, that's my better option. And possibly glass. You just don't know. Exactly. I mean, it's the side of a freeway. I mean, as a female like that, you are going to look to your call boxes to be your best friend. For sure. Yeah, you're right. She would have been looking for call boxes. I, I completely agree with you. And each of these call boxes, had Denise picked up the phone, they would have gone straight to the California Highway Patrol. And it was their policy at the time, and pray to God still is, that if a woman is calling from a call box in the middle of the night, there's an officer that is immediately dispatched to the location. So the detectives from the Costa Mesa Police Department confirmed with the highway patrol that neither of the call boxes, the one behind her vehicle or the one in front of her vehicle, had been used on the night she went missing. 
According to court records, Costa Mesa police officer Burton Santee was dispatched to the location of the car shortly before midnight on June 3rd. Officer Santee directed other officers to call local hospitals, taxi cab companies, tow companies, and he also called for bloodhounds. He and other officers walked both sides of the freeway that night and the center divider. And like you said earlier, the center divider was dirt. It was slightly over 100 feet wide. They traversed all three areas and found nothing whatsoever of any evidentiary value. He actually went back the next day and did the same thing because he was afraid that he would have missed something in the dark that night. And again, found nothing suspicious, nothing out of the ordinary. Costa Mesa police officer Thomas Coote arrived at the scene shortly after 1 a.m. on June 4th and saw the car with the back right tire nearly torn apart. And he saw no obvious signs or evidence of abduction. He saw no blood, no drag marks, no unusual gouge marks on the side of the freeway, nothing. Nonetheless, the vehicle was taken into police custody for forensic examination. Now, the bloodhounds were brought in and they smelled Denise's scent on the side of the freeway, but they lost the trail shortly after that. What I also read was that the bloodhounds actually tracked her scent for about 75 yards, mm-hmm. which is a significant amount of time. And that tells me she was making her way to a call box. For sure. She was not sitting in her car wondering what she should do next. No. I'm sure her tire was blown out and she grabbed her purse, grabbed her keys and was like, oh, I'm going to go to the call box. I'm going to get this figured out. Absolutely. It's what we would have done. Honestly, it's terrifying. It's terrifying to think that she just vanished into thin air and the bloodhounds lost scent in the end. And you're scared enough as it is because your tire has just blown out. And they said that there were tracks left on the freeway, which means it was some sort of skid mark. Right. So she's scared about that. And now she's on the 73 freeway, which has no one there or had no one there right. in the middle of the night. And now she needs to get help. Now that's terrifying. So according to the chief of police, then Chief Snowden, he basically said they left no stone unturned. His officers canvassed the neighborhood. They canvassed the freeway. They searched on foot. Then he dispatched helicopters. He did everything he could to find her. Denise's father said that he could hear the helicopters from his house, and each time he heard them, he hoped that they wouldn't find what they were looking for. I can't even imagine. It's a total catch-22. You don't want them to find her because there's still hope, but if something has happened, you do want them to find her. Right. As I said earlier, the vehicle was impounded for a forensic examination. It was theorized at the time that possibly that tire had been sabotaged so that it would blow on purpose and leave her vulnerable for a suspect. But when they examined the vehicle, not only did they find that there was no trace evidence or blood of any kind or anything with any evidentiary value, they also find that the tire was not sabotaged. It was simply underinflated so that the sidewalls blew out. And crime analyst supervisor Bruce Radomsky testified to exactly that in trial. There was no evidence of tampering. So what they have is an apparent crime scene with zero evidence whatsoever to tell them where Denise was. So the police and her family turned to the media for help. The police handed out buttons, they put bumper stickers on their cars, they passed out flyers, they put up billboards along the 73, and even rented a plane to tow a banner. Now, Uh, do you remember the banner that hung on the 73 right by where she went missing? Yes. It was 30 feet high, and it hung on the side of the building overlooking the spot on the freeway where she vanished, and it said, have you seen Denise Huber, with a photo of her. And it was chilling to see it driving by, because it reminded you that that this 
beautiful young woman had just disappeared. Yes. And I remember it so vividly because it was up for years. Years. And it was like, oh my God, she hasn't been found yet. It was a very chilling situation. The family raised a $10,000 reward, but despite all of this media attention and effort, nothing came of this, which led them to Denise's whereabouts. According to an episode of Oxygen's Buried in the Backyard, then Costa Mesa police chief said because the 73 freeway was essentially local travel only, they assumed that any cars that were on the freeway were regularly Mm -hmm. on the freeway. They had officers sit and record the license plate numbers of cars they saw driving on the freeway in the days that followed and sent follow-up letters to these people with a picture of Denise asking, have you seen her? Did you see anything? Is there anything you can contribute to this investigation? That's incredible. And I believe it yielded a clue. Yeah, you're right. So as a result of receiving one of these letters from the Costa Mesa Police Department, Cynthia Brown came forward. In 1991, she delivered newspapers for the Orange County Register. While on her route at 2.25 a.m. on June 3rd, she was on the 73 freeway and saw hazard lights blinking on a blue Honda. She did not see anyone around the car or at the call boxes nearby. What this means, and this is really odd, is that Robert lived in Huntington Beach, Mm -hmm. and most places in Huntington Beach are at least five to ten minutes from the freeway. Correct. But let's assume he lived close to the freeway. For her to drop him off, get in the car, drive to the 405 South to then get onto the 73 South, at the very least, you were looking at 10 minutes. Right. Very least. From his house to her sighting where Denise is gone is literally only 20 minutes. So like you said, if you take the route, put a realistic time frame on it, we're talking a 10 minute window. At the most. So she is doing the right thing, right? She collects her keys, she collects her purse, she puts her hazards on and she's walking toward a call box and then she disappears. In 10 minutes. Right. Or fewer. With no tire sabotage. So this is a crime of opportunity. It's like everything was in perfect alignment for something terrible to happen. And it's every worst nightmare come true. It's incredible to think. It is. Like somebody happened upon her in this very, very narrow time frame and she's gone with no evidence. Without a trace. Right. So despite the best efforts of the police and Denise's family, the trail went cold. One thing that I do think is really important to mention, Kathy, is that I have seen in numerous articles and on TV shows that they refer to the 73 freeway as a toll road. Same. And it was not in 1991. Nope. It became one in 1996. But the reason this is important to me to explain is that if it was a toll road, there would have been cameras that would have allowed the police to have many more suspects or at the very least, many more witnesses. If they had had a toll road, they would have had cameras. No, they wouldn't have had a transponder like they do today. But even better, there would have been toll booths. There would have been cameras. There would have been people staffing those toll booths. Yes. There would have been other people who could have identified or at least given them leads to try and find Denise rather than the trail going cold. And can you imagine with Robert saying, yeah, she dropped me off at 205. The window of time would have warranted so few license plates at a toll booth. I Honestly. Exactly. They, yeah. they would have found him within minutes. Right. It wasn't a toll booth at the time, and it would have made all the difference in the world had it been. Fast forward three years to a swap meet in Prescott Valley, Arizona. In May 1994, Elaine Canalia owned a paint supply business with Jack Court, who would later become her husband, and they would frequently go to the weekly swap meet in Prescott Valley, which was about 100 miles south of their Phoenix home, to sell their products. It was there that they met 37-year-old John Famolaro. John had a house painting business and told Elaine and Jack that he'd recently moved to the area from California. 
Business wasn't as good as he'd hoped, so he had a lot of paint that he could sell them for their business. A couple of months after meeting John on July 9th, 1994, they agreed to purchase some paint from him and followed him to his house in the small community of Dewey, at that time an unincorporated town in Yavapai County, Arizona. It was there that they first saw a 24-foot yellow moving truck from the Ryder Company. You all have probably seen them. They're sometimes white, they're sometimes yellow, but it has the word Ryder written on the side. And the Ryder truck had been backed in and was parked next to the house as far back as it could go. Okay, but here's the question, Kathy. He said he moved six months prior. Who has a Ryder truck for six months? Nobody. Who can afford it? Nobody. And who would want that? Nobody. Nobody. Elaine has been quoted in numerous articles as saying that for some unknown reason, she was drawn to the truck. She couldn't explain her feelings, but not only did it stand out, I mean, who has a rider truck parked next to their house, but it also looked like it had been there a while with the grass around it six to eight inches high. Elaine's instincts were screaming that something was wrong. That totally reminds me of the gift of fear. Oh my gosh, you're right. For those of you who don't know, The Gift of Fear is a book by a security expert named Gavin DeBecker. And the premise of the book is that we all have these primal instincts that keep us safe. What I remember from the book is that our instincts are based on our five senses. So it is something that we have observed, but we might not be processing it at the time. But our instincts are telling us that we are in danger and we need to pay attention to them. Absolutely. And this isn't a paid ad or anything. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's just, this has been a foundational book in our lives. We recommend everybody read it. It will come up again on our podcast, I have no doubt. Mm -hmm. But The Gift of Fear, Gavin DeBecker. Great book. Great book. So with Jack running interference to keep John Famolaro occupied, Elaine wrote down the license plate number and the serial number on the rider moving truck with the intent of passing it to a detective friend of hers who frequented her paint store. On July 12th, when her detective friend came to her warehouse to buy some paint, Canalia gave him the license number and let him know there was something off about the truck. Canalia simply assumed the truck was stolen. So the detective ran the plate, and it immediately came back as stolen out of Orange County, California. He notified the Yavapai County Sheriff's Department, which had jurisdiction in the unincorporated town of Dewey. On the morning of July 13, 1994, Yavapai County Deputy Sheriff Joseph D. Giacomo went to Famolaro's house in response to a radio call about a possible stolen truck. He knocked on the front door, but when no one answered, he looked around the front of the house. When he found the truck and ran the VIN, the vehicle identification number that is unique to all cars and trucks, it matched a report of a truck stolen from Orange County six months earlier. Although the truck was locked, he noticed a power cord running from under the rear door of the truck that ran over a fence and into the backyard of the house next door, which he thought was odd. I listened to an episode of Forensic Files on this, and the then Yavapai County Sheriff, who was interviewed, saying that the cord led to his next-door neighbor's home, which was his mother's home. Now, it turns out John was living in his mother's home. She had two homes side by side. So this investigator went and knocked on her door and said, hey, by the way, why is this cord running to your house? And she says, oh, my son didn't pay his electricity bill and I want him to have electricity. So he is using my electricity. Deputy DG Giacomo needed to conduct an inventory of the truck's contents in preparation for confiscating the truck and having it towed away. He called a locksmith to open the truck's back door and saw that in addition to buckets of paint, cans of paint, painting equipment, the power cord was connected to a freezer at the back of the truck that was locked and had strips of masking tape running from the top of the freezer over the sides. 
What he saw made Deputy D.G. Acomo assume the truck was being used to manufacture drugs, maybe even some sort of mobile drug lab, and he called the narcotics detectives. Narcotics detectives arrived at the house with a search warrant for the front and backyards and had the locksmith cut through the padlock that had been put on the freezer. Detectives sliced through the masking tape and opened the freezer, and the first thing they saw were large black trash bags that obviously had something in them. One of the investigators reached into the freezer and felt what he thought was a shoulder, so Deputy D. Giacomo sealed off the truck and called Scott Masher, who at the time was the lieutenant supervisor of the Homicide and Major Crimes Unit of the Yavapai County Sheriff's Department. When Lieutenant Masher arrived, he opened the freezer and saw the same large black trash bags that the detectives had seen, but he also smelled a very foul odor and noticed frozen blood was in the bottom of the freezer. He has said in interviews he thought it was deer or elk that was in the freezer and in these large trash bags and didn't even imagine that it could have been a person. After cutting through three layers of plastic trash bags, Lieutenant Masher found a naked female body that was frozen solid. He said on the oxygen episode referenced earlier that he knew it was a female from her hands because her nails were manicured. Hmm. Oh, that's just so sad. For her night out at the Morrissey concert. I know. The body was in a fetal position with the hands handcuffed behind the back. Because he didn't find any identifying information or signs that the body had been killed in the freezer, he sealed the truck and had everything towed to forensic pathologists in Phoenix. In the same Oxygen episode, then-Lieutenant Masher said that while the detectives were processing the truck, John Famolaro came home. Despite the fact that Famolaro knew there was a body in the truck, Masher said that he didn't seem upset or bothered about the police activity. They brought him into the station for questioning, where he was very chatty until they began asking about the freezer. No surprise that at that point, he clammed up and asked for an attorney. Despite his refusal to talk, police had probable cause to support taking Famolaro into custody. So on July 13, 1994, John Famolaro was arrested for murder and for the theft of the moving truck. According to court documents from the California Supreme Court, on July 14, 1994, the day after the discovery of the freezer in the rental truck, police officers executed a search warrant at John Famolaro's home. The best way to describe what they found is that John Famolaro was an organized hoarder. And that, thankfully, turned out to be his downfall. The home was a neat freak's worst nightmare. It was heavily cluttered with stacks of newspapers, books, decades-old receipts, boxes upon boxes upon more boxes, and weapons strewn all around the house. They also found the key to the handcuffs that were on the victim in a desk drawer and newspaper clippings that reported on the disappearance of Denise. So down in the basement of the house, investigators found two boxes that piqued their interest. The boxes were next to each other on a shelf and both had the word Christmas written on them. Upon opening one box, they found items belonging to a woman, a purse and a wallet, as well as a black dress, a black jacket and black shoes. It also included a bloodstained hammer and men's jeans and a man's sweatshirt that were also bloodstained. On the second box, even the flaps over the top of it were stained with blood. Inside of here, they found an empty box for the handcuffs, a roll of duct tape, and a blood-stained nail puller. Thank God this guy was a hoarder. In the basement of John Famolaro's house, they also found additional female clothing, along with social security cards that belonged to 12 or 13 different women. Oh my gosh. And it gets worse. Hmm. When they reached the back of the basement, they discovered that Famolaro had dug a significant-sized room out of the dirt that was the basement floor. Between finding the possessions of a number of women and now finding this chamber... Detectives began to think that there would be more victims. 
However, when they brought in dogs to search for other bodies in the basement and the backyard, something they did extensively, nothing was ever found. Inside the house, police recovered 100,000 items. Jeez. I feel like they basically cleaned the hoarder's house. Exactly. But one of the things they found will play a key role in the investigation going forward. Before you get into that, uh-huh. let me tell you on that forensic file episode that I saw, Mom. Mama Fabalaro? Yeah. Once she became aware that there was a search of her son's home, and according to then Chief Masher, there was also a search of her home, which apparently warranted nothing of note because it wasn't discussed in any of the court records that I saw. But she, according to investigators, put a chair out and watched, what was it, two weeks that they searched this guy's house? She sat and watched the entire thing. What was she expecting to see? They were inside the house. I have no idea. But she was like making her presence known. Was she like giving them the evil eye? I don't know. Probably. (laughs) That's that's my story. One of the most interesting items that investigators found was a receipt for the purchase and delivery of the freezer that they had found in the Ryder truck. It had been ordered from a now closed department store called Montgomery Ward. I remember Montgomery Ward. (laughs) And if nobody else does, ask your parents. (laughs) On June 10th, 1991, this is one week after Denise's disappearance, and it was delivered the next day. The address for the delivery was a warehouse in Laguna Hills, California. Don't forget that. We'll be coming back to it. As Kathy with a K indicated previously, Denise's body and the freezer in which she was kept were transferred to Phoenix for forensic examination. Dr. Ann Buckholtz was the Maricopa County coroner at the time, and she was responsible for Denise's autopsy. Dr. Buckholtz had two primary goals. One was to identify the victim, and one was to collect evidence. In order to identify Denise, they needed to get her fingerprints, but she was sent there in her frozen state with shriveled fingers. So Dr. Buckholtz reconstituted Denise's fingers with saline solution, I'm assuming, but I don't know for sure. And she rolled her fingertips out on a fingerprint card, just like you see on television. The prints were eventually entered into a database by the police department, and they came back with a match. The prints came back to Denise Huber, who was missing from Newport Beach, California, since June of 1991. Now that they had a name... Lieutenant Masher contacted Orange County, California authorities to let them know that they had found the body of Denise Huber. To say the Orange County authorities were shocked was an understatement. I think they, along with the rest of Orange County and anybody who'd heard about the case, were still holding out hope that she'd be found alive. Now, remember the receipt I talked about that they found in the hoarder's house that listed the freezer delivery address as being a warehouse in Laguna Hills, California? Lieutenant Masher shared this information with the Orange County Sheriff's Department, and they sent investigators out to this location. By visiting the site, the Sheriff's Department was able to determine that John Famolaro had used the warehouse not only for his paint business, but had converted one of the rooms into a personal living space. Without the benefit of a confession from John Famolaro, the police had to theorize about what happened to Denise. They believe that when Denise's tire blew out on the 73 freeway, Famolaro likely drove by and saw her as an easy victim and pulled over. During the search of Famolaro's house, they had recovered two L.A. County Sheriff's deputy uniforms, so investigators believe that he was posing as law enforcement and was able to lure Denise into his truck. They suspect that he almost immediately knocked her out, then duct taped her face and handcuffed her. The damage to the back of Denise's shoes led them to believe that Famolaro had dragged her into his rented warehouse space. 
They believe when he got Denise into the warehouse, he tied the three white plastic bags around her head and sexually assaulted her. He then took the hammer and violently struck her head repeatedly, causing her death. John Famolero was extradited from Arizona to California, which was very controversial because so many people knew about the disappearance of Denise Huber. Of course. Exactly. And the banner was up for three years. They probably still saw that every day. Correct. So the trial was to take place in Orange County. John Famolero was charged with first-degree murder with special circumstances of sodomy and kidnapping. The reason special circumstances are critical is because if the special circumstances are found to be true, it means that you are either eligible for the death penalty or life without the possibility of parole. So basically, it's a life or death situation. Correct. The legislature carves out certain circumstances where if you murder somebody, in addition to that murder, you have these scenarios, then you're up for the death penalty, again, or life without parole. Jury selection began on April 23rd, 1997, and it took until May 7th, 1997 to actually seat the jury and begin the trial. I believe I read that they went through 1,500 people. I believe it. Yeah, during jury selection, because the defense, of course, it was such a high-profile case, and they were trying to weed out people who were preconditioned to certain mindsets based upon the media. So yeah, it took quite a long time to get through jury selection. But anyway, on May 7th, the trial begins. In order to prove the special circumstances, the prosecution put on Dr. Buckholtz. And again, Dr. Buckholtz was the coroner who performed the autopsy. And she testified to the condition of Denise's body when it came to her. Again, it's frozen solid. And Dr. Buckholtz testified that she knew there was a possibility of a sexual assault. And she also knew that the body was going to rapidly decompose upon thawing. She took a hairdryer to thaw out the parts of the body, which she believed may warrant evidence of sexual assault. And she thawed those areas, took whatever samples she could take, and then she waited till the body was even more thawed two days later, and she took further samples. She noted that the body's head had been wrapped with three white kitchen garbage bags and gray tape covered the face from the mouth to the upper eyelids. She noticed that the mouth had been gagged, but during the process of the thawing, the gag had fallen out of the mouth. And she noticed that the skull was fractured to the point where she was a completely unrecognizable person. Uh, You know... An interesting note, though, about the tape that was on her mouth Mm -hmm. and eyelids, the duct tape that they had found in one of those two boxes, they later were able to match the end of that duct tape to a piece of tape that was on Denise's body. Wow, that's incredible. Dr. Buckholtz also noted that her arms were handcuffed behind her back and that her entire body was encased in a larger plastic bag. Because there was plastic embedded in her skull, Dr. Buckles concluded that she had been bound and gagged and tied this way and then beaten with an object. Dr. Buckholtz described Denise's skull as basically shattered. She said that her cause of death was blunt force trauma, and she pointed out that the scalp has so many blood vessels that her injuries probably led to profuse bleeding if her heart was still beating at the time. There were no defensive wounds. There was no signs of external trauma. There was no physical trauma to her vagina or rectum, although the doctor stated that sexual assault could occur without traumas to those regions. 
Dr. Buckholtz knew that she would need the assistance of a forensic anthropologist to help her piece Denise's head together. She actually used two of them, one of whom was Dr. Laura Fulginetti, and she said that her job was such that she would go to work, she would put her head down, she'd work hard, she'd do her thing, and then she'd go home and cry in the shower. She said that after doing Denise's case, if she had a tough job, she would remind herself that if she could do Denise Huber's case, she could do anything. Wow. Like it became like a motivating force for her. Interestingly, in the same episode of Forensic Files, Dr. Buckhold said that when she is driving on the interstate, she will not allow anyone to help her if she breaks down because of the Denise Huber case. Thank goodness for people like Dr. Buckholz, like Dr. Fulginetti. Ugh. Can you imagine doing that job? No. I can't. And yet it's so critical to get that job done, mm -hmm. to find out who would do such horrific things to people. I would cry every night. I can't even imagine. So once the forensic anthropologist pieced together Denise's skull, they determined that she sustained at least 30 blows to her head. And they were consistent with the hammer and the nail puller that were found in John Famolero's home. So do you know what a nail puller looks like? I looked it up when we were doing our research for this episode. There's different shapes and sizes, but for the most part, they look to be about a foot long, solid metal. And both ends of this nail puller are meant to actually be able to pull nails out of walls. So they can be curved. One side could be curved. One side could be flat. But basically, it's a weapon. It's a heavy metal object. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. exactly it. A forensic scientist from the Orange County Crime Lab, her name was Mary Hong, and she testified that the DNA, so they, again, Dr. Buckholz sent Denise's bone marrow to the Orange County Crime Lab, and Mary Hong tested it against some of the items that they found at John Famolero's house. Now, mind you, DNA was not what it is today. It's like 1997 doesn't sound like it's that long ago, but we have made leaps and bounds, and DNA really, you know, you hear these statistics like, oh, you know, one in 25 million kind of thing. Well, back then it was more like, they would take certain genetic markers and then you were consistent or inconsistent. So it might be one in 30 or one in 60. Laura Hong testified that there were two genetic markers that she was comparing from Denise's DNA with items found in John Famolero's house. She testified that the test revealed the blood stains from the wood floorboard taken from the former warehouse unit and the nail puller found in the defendant's Arizona home could not have come from the defendant, but could have come from Denise. She also found the same kind of ruling in and ruling out with respect to other bloody items found in John Famolero's home. Another forensic scientist, Lisa Arnell from the Orange County Crab Lab, also testified about the presence of sperm. Now remember, this is important for the special circumstance of sodomy. There was no sperm found in the vaginal swabs or the oral swabs. However, she found what she characterized as apparent sperm in the rectal swabs. What does apparent sperm mean? It basically, it didn't have a tail and it had the color markers that they would assume a sperm would have. But without the tail, it's not sperm. Potentially is not sperm. Correct. Interesting that you bring that up because, for example, the FBI at the time was not allowed to characterize something as sperm unless it had a tail. But the Orange County Crime Lab did not have those kind of restrictions. So in her initial report, she puts apparent sperm. But when she gets on the stand, she says there were two apparent sperm, but there were two actual sperm from the rectal slides. 
The prosecutor called another expert witness on the issue of sperm, and his name is Edwin Jones, and he was a criminalist with the Ventura County Sheriff's Department. And according to court records, he testified that he reviewed the same slides as Lisa Arnell of the Orange County Crime Lab, and that all of the sperm that she labeled as apparent sperm were actually not just apparent sperm, they were sperm. So the FBI has one set of criteria, Orange County has another set, and it sounds like Ventura has a whole new set. Exactly. The FBI basically says, hey, look, we can't say it's sperm if it doesn't have a tail, but there weren't not these kind of restrictions in Orange County or Ventura at the time. So naturally, the defense experts, Charles Sims and William Collier, both testified they could not conclusively determine the presence of sperm in any of the slides examined by the prosecution experts. And again, the defense wants to defeat the special circumstances. That is their goal. The prosecution experts admitted that there was no seminal fluid anywhere on Denise and that they could not extract DNA from the sperm to determine its origin. So even if they find these sperm cells, nobody knows who they came from. The defense is fighting hard on this point again because of the special circumstance of sodomy. They also fought hard on the point of the special circumstance of kidnapping. The public defender investigator actually put on a pair of heels similar to Denise's and went down that 75 to 100 foot slope that we talked about. That wasn't traversable by a woman in high heels? Yes. So anyway, so then she takes off the heels. They then have these heels. So they're all scuffed up, just like the heels that they found in John Famolera's house were also scuffed up. They try to show that, oh, Denise's heels were actually scuffed because she went down the embankment. And fell into his freezer. I know. Can you imagine? Yeah. So they're just fighting hard the special circumstances because they don't want this to be a death penalty case. Ultimately, the function of a jury is to determine facts. The judge is the one who applies the law. The juries are given a set of facts from the prosecution, a set of facts from the defense, and they have to decide which facts are true and which facts are false. They decide with the prosecution, and on May 22nd, 1997, John Famolero is found guilty of first-degree murder, and the jury found that the allegations of special circumstances were true. So now he is a candidate for life in prison without the possibility of parole or the death penalty. So what shocked me when I was reading about this is that this is potentially and did become a capital murder case. It took the jury five hours Mm -hmm. to reach their verdict. That tells me that the evidence must have been overwhelmingly in support of finding John Famolaro guilty of this crime. Yes, definitely. One of the most heartbreaking parts of the guilt phase of the trial is that Denise's mom had to testify about her possessions, that she recognized these things that were found in John Famolero's house. One of them was a Maui key ring, her checkbook, her wallet, her scuffed shoes with a missing tip. And Mrs. Huber testified that Denise would never have gone out of the house like that, but that those were her shoes. And there was also a piece of paper that they found in John Famolero's possession with Denise's writing on it that had people's phone numbers. Oh, it must have been so hard to see her writing. I can't even imagine. Like, that is the most personal thing of all, almost. Totally. I can't imagine. Thank God he was convicted. And like you said, it was five hours of deliberation. After the guilt phase comes the penalty phase of trial. We as listeners always want to know how these monsters are created. And this information comes during the penalty phase. 
The goal of the defense is to take this person who has already been convicted of the crime and to put forth witnesses who will say anything good about them. Their hope is that the jury doesn't hate their clients so much that they recommend a death penalty. And in the John Familero case, the defense actually had a lot of ammunition. The defense put on over 20 witnesses who, at different points in John Familero's life, had positive interactions with him. Now, the prosecution can counter that, but this is where the defense really shows us what's the excuse. Is there any excuse that he could have done this? Exactly. But anyway, the bottom line is that John Familero's mother, she was completely monstrous. She was one of these people who used religion as an excuse to beat down her children. She perverted religion. Completely perverted religion. John Familero lived in Santa Ana, California. Which is in Orange County. Exactly. Since the age of two. It's basically close to where all of this action happened. And he had an older sister, Marion, and an older brother, Warren. And by all accounts, Warren was sort of the favorite child. Marion seemed to just kind of try to stay out of the way of the mom. And the mom, to say she was controlling is a complete and total understatement. She was a dominant force in the home, was verbally abusive and mean to his father. His father basically, you know, like, ah. He checked out. Yeah. Go along to get along, that kind of thing. Spent a lot of time away from the home. Exactly. And according to Marion's testimony, nobody ever came over to the kid's house. They were embarrassed because the mom was also a pack rat and she would listen to their telephone conversations. She didn't want any other kids in the house. She didn't want them going to hell and they weren't allowed to see anything related to sex education. If they were watching television as a family, she would tell everybody where they got to sit. She would nose through their books at school to see what they were writing about. And she would bathe them once a week. So once a week, these kids got bath and Mama Familero bathed them into their like prepubescent years. No wonder they didn't have friends come over. There's no way they had friends. Yeah, no. To call her extremist was an understatement. She was constantly telling them that they were going to hell. They were the ones going to hell? I know. For this and that and whatever. And then one time she hid in the backseat of Warren's car. I can't remember if he was in high school or college at the time to try to catch him masturbating. Can you imagine? What a nut. Warren testified at trial when she would actually bathe them. Like he was implying that she would get turned on. And then John's the youngest. He's slight in his build. He was called Femolero by kids. He got picked on. Warren said he spent time defending his brother. And then Marion testified there was a time when John was, I can't remember if she said seven or eight, that he was super, super ill, very, very bad flu, diarrhea, vomiting, and he was crying and calling for his mother. And his mother wouldn't go to him. And she would not let Marion go to him. When Marion went off to college in Iowa, mom went with her. Mom stayed for, it was under a year, but it's the same length of time. Did she sleep under her dorm room bed? <laughs> no idea. But isn't that like, that's crazy. Well, and you know, it also says something about Marion leaving immediately after high school because I'm guessing she was trying to flee. Exactly. Yeah. No kidding. So John grows up. He is unhealthy. He is a physically unhealthy child. He is weak. As he gets older, he seems to mature more into himself. He actually went to a police academy, didn't finish. Thank goodness. He went to Thomas Aquinas College, didn't finish. Went to chiropractic college in California, didn't finish. I'm seeing a pattern. Exactly. So he eventually started a painting business that was located in Laguna Hills. Oh, I got to tell you this. So Warren... The golden child. The golden child 
has a girlfriend when he is, he was involved in a romantic relationship when he was in chiropractic college. Did he finish? Which he actually finished, yes, with a girl named Mary. Now, they eventually break up because of mom primarily, like basically saying that mom would call her at all hours saying that she didn't want her to be with Warren, all this kind of stuff. So eventually this gal, Mary, says, okay, peace out. I'm done. Mary and Warren break up. And three years later, and this is probably like mid-1970s, they decide they're going to get back together and decide, you know, should is this going to go further? Should we really like give it a go? So Mary flies into town from Iowa, flies to California, and Warren sets her up near his home in a place called the Aqua Motel. And she stays there for two weeks. Well, one night, now this is all in the testimony. In Warren's testimony? They actually got Mary on the stand during the penalty phase. Now, this is the defense calling her just to show what a nut Mama Familero is and just how overbearing she was in her children's life. Mary and Warren had gone out to dinner with two friends. Warren and Ron were both chiropractors. The date ends, Mary and Warren go back to the motel, they have a few drinks, and then he leaves. A half hour later, there was a knock at the door, a desperate knock from a woman saying that she was Jenny Berman, and to please let her in, somebody was after her. So Mary opens the door, Mama Familero barges in, looks around the room and says, this is now testimony in court. You love to F my son. You love to suck my son. Then slapped Mary in the face and told her she was going to die that night. Anne told Mary that Anne had had a long life. Anne Familero, Mama Familero, had had a long life and she didn't care whether she lived or not, but that Mary wasn't going to have her son Warren. She also tells Mary, and by the way, don't leave the room because I've already paid someone across the street to shoot you if you leave. That's psychological (laughs) terror. She's a nut. Then Mama Familero goes off on some religious tangent about like sex and religion and hell and the Virgin Mary and all this kind of stuff that made no sense whatsoever. And then Mary says, how about if I just catch a plane to Iowa tonight and never see your son again? And sister, this is a direct quote. No, it's too late for you. You're going out tonight, sister. There's nothing you can do at this point. You are going to die tonight. Mama Familero then jumps on Mary and starts choking her. Mary manages to pull her off, runs out the door, screaming, runs to the office saying, help, help. You know, my God, somebody's trying to kill me. Call the police. Okay. The motel owner says, no, your mother is here. (laughs) She wanted to know what room you were in. Your mother is here to visit you. And thank goodness that won't happen today. My God, exactly. So Mary says, no, 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 that's not my mother. She's trying to kill me. So the police come and she wants to press charges. Eventually, John Famolero's father and his brother, Warren, convince Mary, let it go. We don't want to drag the family name through the mud. In further testimony regarding Warren, needless to say, Mary left the picture. Warren Famolero testified that he was a chiropractor until the early 1980s, but was arrested in 1980 and ultimately convicted for having oral copulation with a 10-year-old boy and unlawful sexual intercourse with a 17-year-old girl. He spent two and a half years at Patton State Hospital as a mentally disordered sex offender. What he didn't say in his testimony was that on the day that he was arrested for these crimes, his mother, who had decided she could run a better city with all of her glorious piety, announced to run for the Santa Ana City Council. Uh He was arrested. She closed her campaign. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Warren acknowledged under oath 
that he tried to fondle his sister Marion several times when he was in the seventh grade, but he didn't get too far. Yet, he denied doing anything to John. An interesting side note is that Marion, John's sister, testified that within a few days of the Denise Huber disappearance, she gets a call from her brother, John, and he's crying. And he basically says, did he do it to you too? Implying that Warren had molested him as a child. Now, the prosecution objects, and that's really not entered into evidence. But ultimately, on June 18th, 1997, this jury, after a day and a half of deliberation, recommended the death sentence for John Famolero. In a June 19, 1997 LA Times article written by Devon Mirage and Tao Hui, jurors were interviewed and they stated, quote, We prayed that when he does get the death penalty, maybe he would find his own way. The authors of the article stated that the jury, which consisted of nine women and three men, wiped away tears and joined hands to pray for his soul. One of the things that made a distinct impression on the jurors' minds was a photograph which was blown up and used during the trial. And it was a photograph that was taken in Arizona when Denise was found in that freezer. It was taken by detectives. It showed that she had been blindfolded and bludgeoned. She was in the fetal position with her hands behind her back. Her face and head were the marks of the 31 blows inflicted with the roofing nail puller and the hammer. Kristen Gundel, one of the jurors, was quoted as saying, the picture is something I will never erase. It was gut-wrenching for me. Another juror was quoted as saying, the damage done to her head, it was atrocious. You go back to that picture and you think, this is almost not a human being. One juror summed it up nicely when he was quoted as saying, we could not hold anyone responsible for John's actions, but John himself. On September 5th, 1997, Orange County Superior Court Judge John Ryan sentenced John Famolero to death for the murder of Denise Huber. According to an LA Times article written by Greg Fernandez, at the hearing, Judge Ryan spoke of the terror that Denise must have felt during the final moments of her life. Just imagine what was going through her mind, said Judge Ryan, as he described how the 23-year-old woman was abducted from the shoulder of the freeway with a broken-down car, then taken to a Laguna Hills warehouse where she was sexually assaulted and bludgeoned to death. Now, because this is California, it's a death penalty case, there's an automatic appeal, and his attorneys filed an appeal. It was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages. But in 2011, the California Supreme Court unanimously affirmed the death penalty against John Famolero. They found that he received a fair trial for Denise's murder and that on death row he should stay. John Famolero is currently on death row in San Quentin Prison, California, but the effects of what he did on that fateful day, June 3rd, 1991, still reverberate with her family. During the trial, both Mr. and Mrs. Huber testified of the suffering that they personally endured as a result of having a missing daughter and then as a result of having her body found. 
One of the things that Mr. Huber testified was actually about the note, which Kathy with a K referenced in the beginning. The note that said, hi, dad, I love you. Have a great day. Love, Denise. Mr. Huber testified that he would not take a million dollars for that piece of paper. There is a hole inside of him that he does not think will ever fill up. And this is from a man who had breakfast every Friday with his daughter. The Hubers moved not long after Denise's abduction because of all the memories and the pain associated with that night. Understandable. Totally. And on her headstone in South Dakota, the Hubers inscribed, you'll always be loved. In September 2019, so just a couple of years ago, a possible motive behind the murder came to light. Brianna Whitney, reporting for azfamily.com, spoke with Mr. and Mrs. Huber regarding new information the Hubers had received back in 2018 that may have given them an answer to the question, why Denise? 24 years after Denise's body was found, the Hubers received a letter from somebody close to John Famolaro. They called that man, who they haven't revealed, and he told them that when Denise went missing, John Famolaro had recently dated a woman who left him, and that girl looked exactly like Denise. Wow. Mrs. Huber was quoted as saying she looked almost like twins. Not only did she look a lot like her, they had the same cut of hair and the same kind and color of car. Oh, can't imagine. So here's this guy cruising down the freeway thinking that he saw... Ex-girlfriend. Yeah. Mrs. Huber went on to say that the person who had corresponded with them felt that it might have been a case of mistaken identity, or maybe when he saw Denise, it just made him snap. Mm -hmm. They'll never know for sure if that's the case, but they did say it brought them some closure after all these years. This is Kathy with a K, and I wanted to share with all of you why we chose Denise Huber's case to be our very first podcast. When my sister and I were in high school, my mom would talk to us a lot about how to keep ourselves safe. We were teenagers with cars in Southern California, and it was changing from the safe place of our youth to something more dangerous. Since most days, Kathy with a C was a fixture at our house after school, she was part of these conversations as well. Mom wanted to make sure we grew up being aware of what was going on around us. She wanted to make sure we grew up trusting our instincts, and she wanted to make sure we grew up with the knowledge to hopefully keep ourselves safe no matter the situation. Bottom line, she wanted to make sure we grew up. As we mentioned during the podcast, the Denise Huber disappearance happened in our own backyard, and it was something we were very aware of. When we talked to my mom about this, she reminded us that sometimes it doesn't matter how prepared you are, and it doesn't matter if you did everything right. You can be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and sometimes bad things happen to good people. We're dedicating today's episode to my mom for always taking the time to make sure we learn from stories like these. She would have been one of our greatest champions in launching our podcast, knowing that the memories of these victims will live on and hopefully help keep others safe like she did with us. Thanks for being with us. We'll be dropping new episodes every Tuesday night. You can follow us on all the socials at Killer Destinations Podcast. And if you enjoy this episode, please help spread the word and review us wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.